Well, over the last year or so, we have become accustomed to wearing masks or face coverings. Perhaps you're, like me, getting somewhat confused as to when to put them on or what context I need to have these things on. You, you sort of uh, get used now to perhaps not wearing them over the last couple of weeks and, and you run up to a, a business and you wonder, do I need this mask to, to go in? Or, or perhaps if you are, are like me, often in the city and you cross into the city and they have different rules and regulations and and we got accustomed to wearing these masks, but for, for so many, and perhaps for some here today, uh, we wear masks every day. We live lives where we put on a mask, we put on a facade, we put on a, a particular way of life, and, and we pretend. We, we put on these masks, and, and Jesus in our text this morning uses this word, hypocrisy. The word itself is uh, a word that means a play actor, someone who acts. One of the greatest fears of any actor is to become a, a typecast actor, one who only is seen as that particular thing, as that particular uh, character that they play. I mean, how many of us have ever watched an interview with our favorite actor or actress and come to the conclusion, how is it that they function in the real world? They often, if you listen to an interview that an actor does, they, they're really not eloquent in speech. They are unable to put together any sentences. And it's because they're so used to reading from a script. They memorize their lines and they are so talented at telling the lines that they themselves are not as eloquent as the characters that they portray. That temptation is true for us this morning. We can become so familiar with the things of God that they roll off our lips like we are acquainted with them. We can talk about God in such a way that, that people are impressed, that, that they think that we must hang out with God. We must be near God. Jesus confronts the kind of hypocrisy that we know is so true among God's people. We become so accustomed to the language. We, we know what we're supposed to do and we put on these masks. We play these particular roles and all a while inwardly we are devoid of the Spirit and living in rebellion against God. Jesus confronts in the Sermon on the Mount not only the right way of living, but the wrong way of living. In the first half of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has taught his disciples to pursue a greater righteousness than that of the scribes and Pharisees. A righteousness of a different quality, not quantity. A righteousness that is exceedingly greater than. And in chapter 6, Jesus shifts from telling them what to do to telling them what not to do. Jesus encourages them and warns them to avoid the kind of righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees portray to have. You see, the righteousness of these scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders, were, was an external righteousness. It was a righteousness done for show. On the other hand, the disciples were to pursue an inward, lasting righteousness. One done not for the glory of men, but for the glory of God. 
And Jesus here in chapter 6 begins to set out the overarching principle. We know these verses perhaps well because within chapter 6 contains the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We, we know that passage perhaps well, but, but it fits within a bigger context of what Jesus is arguing here in chapter 6. Namely, an external righteousness, a hypocrisy, a, 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 a face only, a, a masked righteousness. One that seeks to receive the praises of men rather than the praises of God. And so here in chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Jesus sets out this greater overarching principle that inward righteousness that receives the praises of the Father is greater than an external righteousness, which is only for the praises of men. And he illustrates here these three areas within the life of, of, of an average Jew that this giving alms, praying, and fasting an area in their lives where they might be tempted for the, to, to give themselves to this external righteousness. And over the next few weeks, we're going to consider each of them. And this morning, considering the context of giving. Where so often we are tempted to give to those in need in a way that we receive the praises of men rather than the praise of God. So I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6 if you've not done so already. And uh, we're going to consider this morning verses 1 through 4. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your heavenly Father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, as Jesus sets out, he sets out this main overarching principle in, in the context here of giving. That as Christians, we are to give generously to those in need. And in doing so, we will reap an eternal reward from our Heavenly Father. In other words, uh, the manner and the motivation in, in how we give is important to God. That, that, that God cares not only the act of giving, but how we give and why we give it. And so the purpose of our, our really time in this text this morning is to cause us to reflect on this. How do I give? Do I give in such a way as to receive the praises of men? Or do I give generously out of the out, outflow of the gift that God has given to me in Christ? Such that I give to receive the praises of God. Eternally, and not settle for the praises of men. And so this morning we see really two, two parts. First, verse 1, Jesus offers us this general principle concerning our pursuit of righteousness. So Jesus goes after, generally speaking, why do we want to be righteous? How, how do we go about being righteous? And then secondly, 
uh, in verses 2 through 4, he applies it specifically to a, a specific illustration that is giving. And then, as I said, over the next couple of weeks, we'll look at praying and fasting as two other areas where we might do those in, a, in, a, in an effort to be praised by men. Look here at verse 1, Jesus again, he says, beware, he, he warns them, warning, beware of practicing what? Your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. The context here of what Jesus is referring to is this righteousness that he's been teaching on. This good works. Righteousness isn't the sort of Pauline aspect of forensic righteousness, but rather the, the sort of what Matthew is using here in the book of Matthew as righteousness, good deeds, good works. Jesus is saying, don't do your good works in order to be seen by others. In other words, Jesus is confronting a particular manner in which the scribes and Pharisees approached righteousness. For them, righteousness was not a means to an ends, but rather a means in order to receive the praises of men. Notice here the manner in which they did it. Before other people. They made sure that when they did a righteous deed, some praiseworthy act, that they did it in the seeing of others. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be noticed. They, they wanted the attention of those around them. But they didn't want attention for attention's sake. Uh, they weren't spoiled brats in that way. But rather, they wanted the attention of others, and notice here their motive, in order to be seen by other people. In other words, whenever they... They did their good deed. They wanted to ensure an audience so that the audience would congratulate them for their good deed. Later in the book of Matthew, uh, in chapter 23, Jesus will confront the hypocrisy of the Pharisees head on. He'll say this to them, that they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbis by others. In other words, they liked being the center of attention. And this is the point. You see, when they were the center of attention, God was not. They had replaced God. They wanted the praises of men rather than those praises going to God. They wanted to ensure that they themselves were the source of the righteousness, the goodness they found in them rather than God. Jesus will continue in Matthew 23 by saying to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he says. And then he describes them in, I think, perhaps one of the most vivid ways. He says, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bone and uncleanness. What a vivid picture, isn't it? Whitewashed tombs? Something that's whitewashed is something that's clean, something that appears to, to, to be pure and, and right. But we know that inside of those tombs, inside of those, 
those, those coffins is, is a rotting corpse. It, it's not a pretty scene. And Jesus says, this is exactly the state of your soul. You, you have this appearance of godliness, but you lack its power, the Apostle Paul would say. Jesus confronts the manner and the motive in which they're going about their righteousness. And he provides his disciples here in chapter uh, 6, verse 1, the reason why one should not do their righteousness in such a way. Look here at verse 1 again. For then, for when you practice your righteousness in such this way, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says that when you receive the praises of men, you are receiving your reward. You got your reward. I hope it was good for you. I hope you like it because you got it. And you have no expectation of receiving any greater reward. For then you have received it. The, the verbal idea that Jesus paints here is one that is complete, one that is finished. You have received there is nothing more to receive. There's no extra. Your cup is full. You got what's coming to you. Notice here the source by which this reward would come. Verse 1. From your Father who is in heaven. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, you're not going to get a reward. But he wants to make sure that the disciples have in their mind what it is they are missing out on. You see, Jesus sets up a, a, a polarity. He says, look, you can receive the praises of men, which feels great. And who wouldn't want it, right, he says. I mean, who wouldn't want to be congratulated by men? Who here in this room has not enjoyed receiving the praises of others? Who hasn't in their life, in a moment, experienced the praise and congratulations of others and felt, wow, that feels good. So Jesus here is not denying that the praises of men doesn't feel good. But what he's doing is, is he's comparing to and he's saying, which is better? Which is greater? Receiving the fleeting praises of men or the eternal praise of your father who is where? In heaven. You see, Jesus wants to make clear who is the one giving the praise and where the praise is coming from? In other words, if you understand the whole of all that Matthew is arguing towards, that is the kingdom of God has come, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why would you want investments in a world that is failing? Why would you want to hold on to the praises of a fleeting world when what you could have is currency that you can spend in heaven? Why would you want a reward here on earth when the earth is passing away and the kingdom of God is at hand when you could have treasures laid up for yourself in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy? He's like, I don't under This does not make any sense. It is illogical to even consider to receive such praises. Again, in the context here, Jesus isn't so much going after the particular acts of righteousness, but rather the motivation and the manner in which you and I could be tempted to approach righteousness. In other words, do you pursue righteousness for show? It is a trap that we can fall into. 
We could fall into the trap of doing righteous deeds in order to be seen rather than doing them out of a motivation for the glory of God. Now, to be clear, Jesus has said that we are to be a light, a city set upon a hill, that we are to make the righteousness of God known. Now, is Jesus sort of double talking us here? Is he speaking in two terms? No, not at all. Jesus isn't saying that we don't do righteous things before others. But rather, what is the manner and the motivation in how we do it? Is the manner connected to the motive? And do we do righteous things for show? At the heart of the issue here in this text is the struggle to gain the approval of others. That's why we're tempted to make a show of anything we do. Who hasn't done something great? Done something good? Done something right? And was only disappointed that no one else saw it. What child who who works diligently and tirelessly to clean their room only to go without the congratulation of their parents? Well done. Good job, son. How many of us have been there? Disappointed. Man, I busted my rear end. And no congratulations. No attaboy. No word of commendation and recommendation from the boss. You see, in our culture, we do what we do in order to gain the approval of others. It's no different than the first century. We struggle here in our own day and age in order to receive the praises of others. And you say, Pastor, you're crazy. Prove it to me. Yeah, I'll prove it to you right now. It's called social media. Period. End of story. I don't care what you had for dinner last night. I don't care what you've been doing. You don't need to take a picture of it. The fact I care demonstrates my own insecurities. Why do we put what we put out there on social? Why do, why do we put what we put on Facebook? Why do we go to Facebook? Why do we go to Instagram? Why do we do what we do on social media? Right? Because we want others to like us. We are desperate for people to like us, to like our posts, to like whatever we say. We're desperate for people in our lives to just talk to us because we live for the praises of men rather than the praises of God. And here's the deal, friends. I'm not a big social media. My wife gets on to me because she, I, I don't do it. And then when I do it, she's like, you're not going to like this. Don't do, you know, just last night I said, hey, I want to check, you know, I want to check Facebook. I want to check Twitter or whatever. And she said, you're, don't do it. You're not, you're going to, you're going to get frustrated. You're going to get, you know, discouraged or whatever. And, and, uh, and <laughs> sure enough, right? Uh, why? Because. What it does is it creates in us an insatiable desire to do things because we know what will get the most likes. I, look, I know the game. Like, I always pay attention. And I'll say to my wife, I'll say, like, why doesn't that ever get a like? Like, you know, I, I'll go through the little feed and I'll, I'll see, like, no likes, no likes, no likes, no likes. And you come across the silliest thing in the world and it has, like, thousands of likes. And so what, well, what am I tempted to do now? 
Well, I'm tempted to go do silly things in order to get a lot of likes. Because, see, I have tied my identity to my likes. I've I, I tied my, who I am to the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And brothers and sisters, what Jesus is confronting to us this morning is when we connect our identity to our pursuit of righteousness, forgetting that those who are in Christ are fully righteous. We have turned religion into a means in order to be praised by men. That is why, friends, there are so many wolves in sheep clothing, because wolves know that religious folks are easy prey. That's why in, in, in churches it's so easy to find charlatans and crooks because they see religious folks as an easy mark to receive the praises of men. And Jesus is calling you and I to live in such a way that we ultimately live for the glory of God and not the selfish gain of others. We are to be righteous. We are to give generously. We are to pray diligently. We are to fast sacrificially. But we are not to do it in such a way to receive the praise of men, but the praise of God. Friend, where are you struggling in this area? Where are you seeking to receive the wages of this world rather than the wages, the reward of your heavenly father? Friend, the praises of men are fleeting. But the praise of God is eternal. What I mean by that is it doesn't go away. Here's the question, and I know you're asking it because you're like me. Yet, what's the reward? You're missing the point if you're asking that question, friend. Jesus doesn't tell us what the reward is. You know why? Because he knows how messed up our heart is. Here's the reward. Here, Here it is. Let me just help you understand what Jesus says here. He says it's from your heavenly father who's in heaven. Does it matter? It's who it's from. That's what matters. I mean, has God ever given a gift that wasn't great? Has he ever given you a gift that you return the day after Christmas? Has he ever done that? Never. Doesn't matter what the gift is, friend. It's from your father who is in heaven. There ain't no one on this earth that is going to praise you the way the heavenly father is going to reward you. Never will compare. So this is the general principle that Jesus sets forth, that we are not to turn our righteousness into a means of receiving the praises of men, but to do so to receive the praises of God, to glorify God rather than self. In verses two through four, Jesus applies this specifically to the area of giving. Now, this morning, this isn't a sermon necessarily on giving, and this is why. Notice what Jesus says twice in, in just these short verses. First, in verse 2, when you give to the needy. And then again in verse 3, but when you give to the needy. What do you notice about what Jesus says in that phrase? When you give. Jesus doesn't say give to the needy. He says when you give to the needy. In other words, he assumes that a godly man, a godly woman is going to give. That he's going to give generously. 
that he's going to give out of the abundance, out of the need. He's going to meet the need. He's going to love his neighbor by meeting the needs of his neighbor. Jesus says, when you give, he assumes that Christians, that his disciples are going to be givers. And of course, in the Jewish context here, those that he's teaching, this would have been one of the chief virtues of the day. Being a almsgiver, which is most likely what Jesus is referring to, giving to the needy, would have been a chief virtue in this Jewish culture. It would have been one of the celebrated virtues of their day. They could give in a number of ways. They could give privately to the synagogue. So in their local community, they could have given to the synagogue for the benevolent fund. So similar to what we do when we collect a benevolent fund, that monies don't go to you know, keep the lights on. The, the money goes to helping those within our congregation who are in need, um, physical need. And, and so the Jews could have given privately or... What seems to be the case here in the context, they could have given publicly. They could have given to to a beggar on the side of the street. uh, What we call, for a lack of a better term, a panhandler, though it wasn't as aggressive as you would perhaps see in in our context. But it would have been someone, they would have been lined up in a certain area of town and one could give. And, and naturally you could see the temptation. When, when you are giving publicly, the temptation would be to give in such a way as to call attention to yourself. And that's exactly what Jesus confronts, both the manner and the motivation of their giving. So again, as in the general principle, Jesus is after manner and motivation. So here in the application, look here in verse 2, he says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that, notice here, that they may be praised by others. He says, when you give, don't give in such a manner as to sound a trumpet before you. Now, scholars are debate whether or not this was an actual practice or not. It seems quite silly that one would run around uh, with a trumpet or some musical instrument announcing their giving. Uh, The illustration, though, seems quite clear, right? Don't give in such a way as to gain people's attention, right? You know, don't. Don't give your offering in quarters, right? So the plate's coming by you on Sunday mornings, and, and here you are dropping those big wads of quarters. I mean, everybody can hear you. You know, the poor usher, he's struggling to get it around because you are so generous. Right? Sound no trumpet before you. Uh, in other words, Jesus here says, don't make a show of it. Don't do things in such a manner as to impress others. You know, one of the funniest things I've ever seen is, and, and this is, I don't know, it's worldly, but man, it shows up in the church all the time. You ever seen when, when organizations give money to another organization, what do they do? They get the biggest stinking check they can get, right? Those ginormous checks. And they print, you know, XYZ Christian organization gives, you know, this... I'll, I'll confess, Southern Baptists, are t- they do this all the time. I remember the first meeting of Southern Baptists I went to, and up on the screen was all these churches giving the most money. And I thought, what a shame. What a shame that these churches 
probably do that in order to get it on the list. I remember as coming here, we, we shifted uh, uh, monies from where well, we were giving a lot of money to the local association, and we, just, we didn't give any more. We just gave to a different organization. And we were like the top-giving church in all of Maryland, Delaware that year, all because we just made a little transactional change on the ledger. You see how one could be tempted to do those kind of uh, jumps and gymnastics in accounting? All to receive the praises of men, no praises of women. Jesus goes after the heart of the matter and he calls them, notice again, hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them this, these play actors, these ones who, who inwardly were, were dead. It was all a show. It was all a, it was all a scam. In other words, their heart was not in it. What their heart was in was in themselves. Friend, you may be tempted to give in such a way, in such a manner, that really what you are aiming at is your own selfish greed. This is what motivated them, Jesus says. That is a purpose statement that they may so that they may be praised by others. They were more motivated by what they would receive than than by what they gave. And that's no that's no way to give. Their giving was, Jesus says, a means to an ends. And that end was not to love neighbor, but the love of self. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, how can, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? You know, it's so tempting to, to, to work towards the glory of self all in the name of the glory of God. Is that you? Jesus again says the reason why. Truly, truly, I say to you, the end of chapter, verse 2, truly, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Again, Jesus paints the same verbal idea. It is done. It is finished. It is complete. There is nothing yet remaining. They have received it. They've got their reward. The praises of men. And what a fleeting praise that is. What a fleeting reward that is. In Luke chapter 6, in a similar type teaching setting, Jesus says it this way, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Have received. One author says this, that it conveys both a sense of receipt in full, that they have not been cheated, and the threat of nothing yet still to come. It is this underlining point that limits their perspective. They cannot see, the author writes, and have no aspirations beyond the applause of their peers. What a sad state that is, isn't it? Jesus paints the picture that they've, re- they've not been cheated. Friend, when you seek the praise of men, you're not going to turn up into heaven and say, I've been cheated. I deserve more. No, you've received, you've, you've received everything you deserve. 
but you could have had more. You could have had abundantly more. You could have had an overflowing cup, but you chose a, just a full cup. Which will you choose, brothers or sisters? We are to give in secret so that we will be rewarded eternally by God the Father. Notice the positive spin that Jesus puts on this in verses 3 and 4. He says, but when you give to the needy, when you give to your brother and sister in need, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You see that repetition, secret, secret, secret? Don't even let your right and your, like, don't even let your own hands know what's happening. As Christians, we are to be generous givers, and we are to give generously to all. In fact, when we give to others, we are reflecting the very character of God. Our giving reflects God's character. That's what, one of the points we, we try to emphasize each week in our service during the time of giving. We give because we have received. Psalm 112, 112 yes, says this, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. In other words, when we give to the poor, we are doing exactly what God does. He gives to those in need. Perhaps one of the greatest examples in Acts, in Acts chapter 10, we are told of a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a worldly dude in all respects, uh, in, in so much that he was not a Jew, but a God-fearer. But listen, Luke describes him as one who gave alms generously to the people and prayed continuously to God. What an epithet, right? To be known. Like Luke knew Cornelius as a guy who was generous. And not because Cornelius made a big show of his generosity, but he was known because his pursuit was for the glory of God and not for man. Or as we heard earlier from Pastor Rod in 2 Corinthians, as he read to us that passage, that the point is this, the Apostle Paul says, that whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. But God loves a, a cheerful giver. God loves those who give generously. And we are to give, Jesus says, remembering who will reward us. Again, look here at verse 2, or verse, um, verse 4, rather. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, I just want to emphasize this point. Who is the better giver? Who is the one who is going to give better, God or men? Who is the one who, who will give you the greater reward? And so often we are tempted again to, to exchange these fleeting praises of men for what we could receive from the Father. As Paul reminds us in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. At the end of the day, what, what corrects this problem is again our identity and our identity complex that we have. See, the only thing that will fix a, a heart that has gone this way is to right the ship towards who you are in Christ. You see, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, you've been united with Jesus. The righteousness that you didn't have, you've received righteousness from Jesus. You are holy. You are righteous before God today. You've been forgiven of your sins. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, so far has your sins been thrown, right? God has forgiven you in such a way, but he has also given you an inheritance, a reward, the inheritance of Jesus. This is who you are. Therefore, you don't need the praises of men because you have received the inheritance imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. It's yours and no one can take it from your hand. It's, it's yours. And no amount of praises from men, millions upon millions of praises upon, upon praises of men will always pale into comparison to that eternal reward you have in Christ. It's yours, friend. Brothers and sisters, it's yours. And so we are to give remembering who will reward us. I know, brothers and sisters, it is tempted. It is tempting for us to get discouraged, for us to be weary. I mean, we're giving, we're, we're striving for righteousness. We're doing all this. We're giving generously to the local church or we're giving generously to those in need. And it seems as if no one is noticing good good then you're doing it right friend when you give in such a way that no one takes notice of it perhaps you then you are doing it right we are to give knowing that god sees even the smallest act of righteousness again notice what he says he says don't let your your left hand know what your right hand is doing in other words let god alone be the witness to your giving and I know some have taken this to totally taken a wrong direction on this left hand, right hand giving. But the picture here, Jesus's point is clear and made clear by verse four. It is give so that you're not holding on. In other words, that you yourself are not testifying to your own giving, but that God is your witness. That you give in such a way that no man can know. Give, knowing that God sees. Friend, if you want to hang out in a verse, hang out here in verse 4. Give with the purpose, he says, so that your giving may be in secret. Isn't that an oxymoron to the, to the pursuits of a hypocrite? They do to be seen, but we do to be unseen. Because because we know the truth that there's really no secrets. Did you know that? Do you know there's really no secrets? You know, you may be good at hiding from others. You might be good at hiding out yourself. 
But the truth is that God knows all and he sees all. What a frightening truth. What a frightening truth that God sees all. But here in the context, it's not frightening. It's good. God sees even the smallest act of righteousness. He sees this morning. He sees when no one else sees. He knows. God knows every act of righteousness we do. God is an all-seeing God. Throughout the, this, this section, throughout this teaching, in verse 6, well here in verse 4, and then in verse 6, and then again in verse 18, Jesus continues to press home this point, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It is a reminder that the author of Hebrews puts before us that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Friend, that's meant to comfort you this morning. God knows all and he sees all. And one day there is coming a day when all things will be made known. And so we can give with confidence. Knowing that we will receive and reap an eternal reward far greater than the praises of men. Which do you choose this morning? Do you choose to continue to receive the praise of those around you? The congratulations of men? Or do you seek the glory of God in Christ and the praises that will come to you and that will be currency for all of eternity? Let us be people who give generously and privately in order to receive God's praises. It is but by the grace of God that we are able to give, brothers and sisters. Count it a privilege that, that God would invite you to participate in the loving care of those in need. Do not see it as a burden, as some sort of nuisance, as some sort of social program, but rather see it as a means to love those created in the image of God. Let us be known as those who give generously, not to receive the accolations and praises and congratulations of men, but because we desire the praises of our Heavenly Father. That's our hope. That's our goal. Let us reflect both, both on the manner in which we give today and the motive behind it in our hearts. Pray, Holy Spirit, expose where we might be giving. And remember... That all of us strive to be holy. We all strive for righteousness in order to hear the praise of God. Well done, good and faithful. Perhaps you've heard this phrase, but by the grace of God go I. It's a reminder that all that we have has been imparted to us by the grace of God. We are saved by grace. We're sanctified by grace. We're glorified by grace. All that we have is by grace. Sola gratias. We are, we are people of grace. Winston Churchill once remarking about a, a particular individual that he knew as he was referring to this, this quite proud man, one whom could be easily described as a hypocrite. Churchill once said, by the, but by the grace of God, go God. It was a winsome way of describing a man who thought himself to be the center of the universe. Friends, let that not be said of us. Let us live by grace, pursue righteousness by grace, and give generously by the grace of God. And remember this truth. 
that we will never outgive God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that we have received in Christ. For a seat at the table. When we deserve the eternal punishment, you have seated us before. And it is in Christ that we have received all that we have. Let us be those who give generously. Convict us, Father, where we live for the praises of others rather than your eternal praises. Help us to fight this temptation this week for your glory and our good in Christ, we pray. Amen.